Welcome to Tesseract Podcast, where we unlock your power to innovate. Hi, my name is Matt, and I'm going to be your host today. Tesseract's mission is to empower airmen, connect them to resources, and accelerate change across the Air Force logistics enterprise. Specifically, our team works as an innovation accelerator assigned to the Air Staff Logistics Directorate, where we partner with airmen to operationalize the new sustainment strategy. Lieutenant General Miller, thank you so much for taking the time today. I know you're probably one of the busiest people here on the air staff, and and uh, but I, I think logistics, maintenance, civil engineers, and defenders are going to be excited to hear from you today. Well, thanks, Matt. And I, we all had exactly the same amount of time, and nobody's time is more important than somebody else's. We just do different things with it. So I'm I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, thank you, sir. So to to get us started, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit before we hit record, but uh, just talking about experiences as young airmen. And I'm curious what Lieutenant Miller was like. And, you know, going into your first base, I mean, we're also talking about the importance of, of the NCO Corps too, and your, your mentors at your first duty station and how that helped shape you as a leader and, and help build the characteristics to be successful throughout your Air Force career. Yep. Great, great point. And, uh, Probably like many, you know, so I'm, I don't know, I was 22 or 23 year old second lieutenant maintenance officer, went to my first base. And interestingly, the difference between, one of the differences between now and then is every senior NCO um, when I was a lieutenant had a Vietnam service ribbon in their ribbon rack, which you don't see anymore. Um, but, you know, Vietnam as, an, as, a, as a war, as a national experience, was much closer to the time I came in the Air Force uh, calendar-wise than even 9-11 is to somebody today. So 9-11 is longer ago uh, than Vietnam was to the senior NCOs I served with. So many of the senior NCOs I served with um, had uh, more than one tour in Vietnam. And and I think that shaped their experience. They had uh, seen uh, combat, They had seen uh, very challenging things. They had seen constrained resources, um, and I think it shaped them. And they were the ones that I looked up to because, frankly, as a lieutenant maintenance officer, that's who you spend your time with uh, is, you know, for me personally, the Master Sergeant Pro Super, Steve Avila, who retired as a chief, uh, who was my first Pro Super. And that was that's a shaping relationship, a shaping event on – things to be concerned about, which he would tell me, and things to not be concerned about. Because frankly, everything doesn't merit the same level of attention. And he did a great, masterful uh, job of describing to me the difference. And uh, took me everywhere he went uh, and and really gave me leadership uh, nuggets that I didn't appreciate as much when I was second Lieutenant Miller. That is Lieutenant General Miller. I still use them, you know, 30 plus years uh, later on. Every assignment is similar in its own way when you're, you're, you know, you came onto the staff recently, the last right. few months. Sure did. Um, have you had that same experience of like, I mean, when you got Chief Sells, right, who's your SEL, uh, is he still mentoring you? He or- is. <laughs> he is. Um, he, there's, uh, and there is, there's senior NCO officer 
special relationship. Um, I would say there's a even more specified, if you can say that, special relationship between chiefs and officers, no matter what the rank of the officer. Um, and I've had that um, not not only with the chief master sergeants that, you know, my, my first chief and, and my first flight line job had been in the Air Force 29 years. And I thought, oh my gosh, 29 years. How could anybody be in the Air Force for that long? Now I've been in the Air Force 32 years, so it doesn't seem as old. He doesn't seem as old to me now <laughs> as he did to then. But when we went on our first TDY, um, I was not old enough to rent the car. No kidding. <laughs> so you had to be 24 to rent a car. He made sure everybody in the airport knew that I was not old enough to rent the car and that he would do it for us. Um, so there's kind of a, you know, a, a jab back and forth there between the chief and the lieutenant. Um, but make no mistake, he was investing me in me as, as an officer. Um, and I saw him uh, having a conversation with some senior NCOs in our unit about another officer in our unit. And, and his point was, who do you think is going to be a squadron commander someday? Don't you think you want to invest in these officers so that they're making the right decisions? They're fully informed with the full perspective of not just the product of their experiences, but the benefit of ours. And I was like, you know, I'm going to school right now seeing this. So I still get that today. I've gotten that from the command chiefs that I've had the honor of uh, serving with in different roles, uh, with Chief Sells, certainly. Uh, now we have, you know, me and him discussion time uh, where he brings in, you know, an issue and says, hey, sir, we need to talk about this. That it, that's when your ears perk up and you go, I'm about to hear what's really important. And so, yes, absolutely still occurs today. Um, it's irreplaceable. I think it's what makes us different than other countries' militaries, frankly. So if you and many um, of your listeners have probably had this experience, but, you know, if you ever try to describe the United States military to someone from another nation. And I won't name the nation, but I was deployed to another nation. I was trying to describe what logistics was. Yep. Got it. We know what logistics is. Okay. I was specifically trying to describe uh, maintenance operation. Yep. Got that too. Talked about NCO core and what the, and then it required more explaining than I thought it would. And we discussed, you know, tried to describe the different roles, the senior NCOs and, you know, NCOs and senior NCOs. And then this thing called a chief is, um, and I don't, I don't know whether it was, uh, the interpreter I was working with my, my words that weren't, you know, complete enough, but it was, it was, I reflected on if it's that hard to explain, maybe it's really part of our culture where it's, we don't have the words in our vocabulary to explain what it is, but we couldn't live without it and we wouldn't be affected without it. I mean, you even look at the conflict in Ukraine right now. And, you know, months ago when you had hundreds and hundreds of vehicles stuck on that road, it just makes you think, who out there is too scared to make a decision? Yeah. Pretty much everybody. All the junior officers, all the NCOs. I mean, the NCO Corps is essentially non-existent, uh, to your point. Um, and we need to be able to, to make those decentralized decisions. And we embrace that as United States military. And uh, that certainly does make us unique or maybe unique isn't the word because there's other, you know, the uh, some of our allied 
partners right. you know, have that um, have that emphasis and focus on it as well. And I would like to think that they're learning from us, right? Um, well, I would definitely say ser- within service culture, mm-hmm. uh, airmen, airmen as a service, you know, you're signing up to be in the problem solving service. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's where a lot of the innovation discussion that happens with the, within the Air Force. That's why it's exciting for a lot of airmen is they go, hey, this is this is the ser- this is why I came into this service. It's not uh, wait over there. We'll contact you if we really you know have no other options but to get your opinion. It's not that. Um, now that can be challenging because sometimes there aren't the resources to implement an innovation, or there's some other constraint that the person that's got the innovative idea isn't aware of at the time. But to your point that you were making before, I think there's a problem to be solved, and I believe. You know, a senior airman feels empowered that, hey, I got something's got to be done here. I'm going to do it. And um, that is a that's that is culture. That is service culture of problem solving, you know, take a different angle on the same problem. You know, the only way to tackle um, enduring problems um, is with different angles. Or it's the definition of insanity, trying the same thing over again and getting the same and getting the same result and being surprised by it. So taking a different angle at it, maybe by somebody who's not constrained by the failures of the past and go, you know, uh, I didn't know I wouldn't be able to do this. So I tried it. And I think that's why um, people are encouraged by innovation. Look at crew chiefs, right? I mean, you got senior airmen, even sometimes A1Cs right. that are responsible for tens of millions of dollars of equipment. You don't typically see that in other branches of service. I mean, as a as an E4, hey, you might be a fire team leader, a squad leader, like in the Army or the Marine Corps. You're responsible for your people. Um, but we empower our NCOs, our young enlisted, or really everybody, period, um, with a serious amount of assets, right? Um and then, you know, you can look at not just maintainers, but defenders as well. There's a reason that AFSC is massive, right? Because they're right. protecting probably the most expensive conglomerate of assets than the Department of Defense, right? Which are our aircraft, uh, you know, our um, ICBMs, you know, you name it. I think when you, you know, at the, a lot of times you'll see at an Airman Leadership School graduation, um, uh, a well-meaning person will say, okay, now you're going to be a staff sergeant and you're going to be ready to lead. And I always kind of wince a little bit when I hear that because I I know senior airmen lead. I know personally, personal observation, A1Cs leading. You know, your point before about, you know, it's an airman first class that's telling the pilot to shut down or not. Mm-hmm. Ma'am, sir, it's unsafe. We're, we need to shut it down. Okay, chief. And they shut down. So you've got an airman first class who doesn't have a lot of time in service, but has been entrusted with this very special in the maintenance example, but it extends to defenders and engineers and logisticians for sure. But in this maintenance example, been trusted with the special um, moral responsibility for someone else's life. Um, and if they're you know 21.5 years old and they're the one who's in the best position to make the call, they make the call. And I think that's uh, that's something that will get us through some very challenging times as a service that we may or may not be anticipating. And that 
reminds me of the basing and logistics enterprise strategy with one of those uh, one of the priorities being developing the airmen that we need, right? Um, but I think the spectrum of the basing and logistics enterprise strategy just encompasses so much. And and I was wondering if you can kind of walk us through how we are operationalizing the BLEZ uh, for short, uh, B-L-E-S for our listeners out there, yeah. <laughs> um, and how we are measuring our success in implementation. Great, great point. So the, the BLEZ, uh, importantly, is an enterprise strategy. That's the E and the S. It's not a half, it's not a headquarters Air Force strategy. It's a enterprise strategy. So what does Miller mean by that? Um, it means that each MAGCOM commander, uh, each NAF commander, each wing commander, each squadron commander um, should be able to look in that the four priorities within the BLEZ and go, you know, the stuff that I'm concerned about, it's in there. It's not a... It's not the strategy of the headquarters United States Air Force. It's, it is an enterprise because if you look across the entire A4 portfolio, there's something I'm, you know, there's things you think and there's things you know. I know this 100% sure is there's no commander out there that has 100% of the resources they need to execute their given task. They're going to need to reach out their hand for, to the enterprise uh, for assistance. So if we're not all pulling in the same direction and have a unity of effort across the enterprise, then how does that supported commander that reaches out their hand to the enterprise for, hey, I need, name name a thing I need, put it in my hand, you know, the surgeon asking for the scalpel, um, that isn't gonna be possible if it isn't across the enterprise. So that's, that's a point that I think is worth making is it's an enterprise strategy, not a Pentagon or headquarters Air Force strategy. The four priorities, um, you know, do get after the things you would think were, and they're the things we're all concerned about. The condi- conducting logistics while under attack, developing the airmen, not just for like tomorrow, but for the future uh, as well. And that may shape, it may change over time. Um, making sure we're spending the resources we have within the Air Force on the top priorities for the United States Air Force, not uh, the shiny penny and not the thing that, uh, not the contract that is executable, but the highest priority, whatever that is. And then, you know, defending our bases and and everything from the the main operating base and the, the base that we all think of that we've been, we've lived in uh, to a contingency location, to something in between, uh, the resiliency, the C2, all of that. The way we track progress on that is we have a, a tier three SES, which is uh, like a three-star equivalent uh, SES, or a three-star general is one of the, is the lead for each of the four uh, priorities. And we do updates on them, uh, including, you know, updates that you know, go up to the senior le- level of the Air Force. But the reason it's not just a half headquarters Air Force um, that is leading those priorities is we need to row in the same, the same direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was talking to Colonel Hartle uh, on the podcast a few months ago, and we were just talking about just the insane amount of strategy documents that are floating around the Pentagon, right? It's a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> and he was joking, hey, if, you, if you're if you able to read through one of them from you know front to back, 
you know, good on you because, you know, not many people do that. But I think the blaze is intuitive. Uh, I think that when you really break it down and, and you read it, it makes sense, right? And then to your point, you know, you can, uh, you know, you can you can mix and match what, you know, what is important to you at that time, right? And, uh, um, but I think when, when we look at how we're, you know, communicating out to the field, um, like, are there, are there mechanisms that like this, like when, when that SES gets that information, mm-hmm. are they going to be like disseminating that down to like the, you know, the, the squadron commander level? And then I guess it com- boils down to the squadron commander of how they would want to communicate that to their people. So at least two examples I can think of. One, you know, would be if it's going down to the squadron level and we're talking about like maybe there's a new equipment requirement that's determined from, you know, um, from one of the priorities we go, you know what, we need a new piece of equipment fielded that we don't currently have. Um, the field is in the best position to determine the validity of that or not, not somebody in a conference room. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where, especially the squadron level and the experimentation, whether it's doing an, you know, an agility exercise, you know, uh, a, a DFE in the Pacific, a going, you name it, whatever they are doing, they they will v- validate whether that's the right next thing for us to put a you know a US taxpayer dollar against priority so if that point is validated well how do we resource that how does that how does money actually get put against that as an air force that comes back up here and the some of those same senior leaders are in the prioritization for uh, a thing called the air force corporate structure which is how we ask uh, we put together the requirement for money. It works its way up through the Air Force, through the Department of Defense, through the president to the Congress, and, and finally approved. Well, one way to validate that we're spending dollars on the most precious things is that kind of vertical flow back and forth between that squadron level, where you're going to see if something is really worth doing or not. Uh, it doesn't just brief well in PowerPoint, but it's actually valid. And then getting it back up to the senior leader who's in the room who can make the compelling case and go, hey, this is this is really important. We need um, we need a piece of support equipment that runs on a battery, not on diesel fuel. You know, we need to to reduce the the size of the pallet position footprint of this deployment package because we're not going to have name the number of C-17s you're hoping for to get you to your location. You're going to get. Three pallet positions. Tell me what you get out of that. And and the th- people that are going to figure out three pallet positions probably are a whole lot more like senior airmen, first lieutenant, and captain versus, you know, colonels and chiefs, to be frank. So they're going to be trying it. They're going to go on exercise. They're going to go, wow, that hurt. Didn't work at all. Not trying that again. And then they're going to try other stuff, and it's going to work, and they can say, valid. That's what we need. Um, and I think that's one of the benefits of the BLEZ being, and you know, it's a credit to General Barry's approach on how he set up the BLEZ in the first place was to not do headquarters Air Force centric, but do United States Air Force across the, the board, Department of Air Force actually, um, to, to reach broadly so we can get a better, a better look and a, a, a tighter solution for some of the Gordian knot level problems that people are dealing with. Mm-hmm. Now, I love your emphasis on the squadron level. It reminds me of General Goldfein's 
emphasis on that, you know, when he was in the seat and just really how important of a position, you know, being a squadron commander is, right? And just look being able to take care of your people, but then also looking forward to to the future fight and preparing your airmen to be uh technically and tactically equipped, um, to be uh considering the constraints, you know, of a future fight. Um, you know, we're not gonna have, to your point, the the aircraft, we're not gonna have the supply lines, we're we're not going to have communications, uh, you know, at some points too. And I guess it leads to a next point I wanted to cover here. Can you paint a picture of what you think the future fight's going to look like for our logistics airmen? So I think it's at least, it's useful to think of competition before the fight too. <clears throat> so if we look, if we look in the rearview mirror, uh, we've had the benefit of a lot of notice you know, we, you could, you know, if you start with Gulf War, um, you know, which is kind of ancient history to you and, and probably many of the listeners. But if you look at, you know, there was a six month buildup of Desert Shield. There was a very long, um, not logistics in the small L, but in the big, everything in the A4 portfolio and far beyond that, there was a significant buildup um, and no attack on that buildup of all this mountain of cargo supplies, you you know, weaponry, you name it. Um, that is not going to happen with a with a pacing threat. If you if we look at even um, our experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, we were. I would never say um, that to someone on the ground that was a permissive environment. But from a logistics chain standpoint, largely uh, in the air, certainly not on the ground. And there was definitely there are there are a lot of people, um, a lot of really brave airmen who were moving fuel through the deserts of Iraq in non armored uh, vehicles in a very consequential time for that for that war. But on the whole, if if you had uh, a requirement for a radar part at a base and uh, name name the point in CENTCOM that you want to, you were the top priority in the Air Force. You would get the part. Um, it was transportation time and maybe some in customs. Uh, it was process time away from getting to you. It was not that we didn't have it and it's not that it wasn't coming. It's just what's the timing of getting it to you. I don't think that's our future. I think uh, I think those, you know, who I think we're an open book uh, as a country, and there's a lot of good things that go with that. There really are. Um, I think our adversaries look at that, and they've been paying attention to how we have been the most effective United you know, Air Force on the planet, um, and they they know how we operate and they're not going to give us the same benefit of six months pre-notification, build up all the supplies you want, and then then we'll, we'll blow the whistle and we'll start to play. That isn't going to happen. So we go from a, a competition stage, which hopefully keeps us from ever being in conflict in the first place. You know, competition, which is tougher to wrap your brain around sometimes. You know, how much benefit are you getting out of this competition event Maybe it's building partnership capacity with another country's 
Air Force. Maybe it's interoperability, you know, with the Australian Air Force and, oh, you have C-17s and we have C-17s and you have F-35s and we have F-35s. And there's this, you know, you could see any number of events, discrete events that we could do during competition, which may make an adversary rerun their calculus and go, you know, I don't, I don't think it's going to play out the way that we previously did. And so the hope um, is that we never get to the conflict because we're successful in competition. I think we're challenged um, as a as a nation to have effective measurement on what are the right things to do in competition and what's the cost of not doing them. It's pretty easy to it's pretty easy to see the impact uh, of a, a weapon coming off of a bomb rack in the CENTCOM AOR and hitting a target. That's knowable, seeable. Uh, there's battle damage assessment. It's assessed and it's knowable. It's much less one and zero binary to really understand what the impact of having a joint exercise or a combined exercise with another country and looking at interoperability issues or, hey, we're going to contract out for this capability in your country, so we're not bringing it with us. Those are tough. They're, they're absolutely important. I think they're tougher to measure. I think what also an airman does look at in the future is not going to have the timeline to build up. You described it before, I think. Um, not going to have the you know unfettered movement of stuff back and forth, whatever that stuff is, uh, going to likely have communications challenges. Um, and it'll be important to know, is it really just a solar flare that's messing with, uh, you know, the communication that I get on a regular basis, or is this somebody, um, you know, messing with us? Is it a cyber attack to start with, you know, where, um, there's confusion and doubt. So I think it will be much less, it will be much more difficult to discern, you know, what the right way forward in a future environment versus the way, not it's all saying it was easy in the past. Um, it will be tougher to discern what, what is fact, um, what is turbulence. Uh, did, the can- did the contract for the fuel showing up at my base cancel because it was just canceled because it was a mistake or was that a cyber attack? And we're still figuring it out two weeks later. When we look at the demands that are placed on airmen, it's not just going to be the fog and friction of of conflict and, and warfare, um, but we're also continuing to place demands on airmen to learn more, to you know, to to be more than just a maintainer, or to be more than just a port dog, right. or more than just a defender. Uh, you know, with with multi capable airmen. Um, What's your take on the development of MCA? Uh, I mean, because it's been evolving the last couple of years. Sure. Um, So I think uh, General Brown, Chief Brown, described it as, you know, you can, the importance of ACE, Agile Combat Employment, and, you know, that MCA is a critical component of being able to, execute this thing called ACE. He goes, and I, and I think he described it as, you can't do ACE without MCA, but you can do MCA without ACE. 
And I think part of his theme there is multi-capable airmen is there's at, at one level, it's the problem solving we were talking about, you know, at the beginning of the podcast where, you know, we're not looking, you don't, nobody uh, that I know in the Air Force walks up to a problem set, looks at the problem set, looks down at the patch or the badge on their uniform and goes, oh, I'm not the right career field for that. I'm not sure I can handle it. I haven't met that airman. They're maybe they're out there, but I haven't met someone who walks up and goes, I can't solve that problem because I'm not the right career field. Um, and I'm encouraged by that because I think some of that, there's an expeditionary skill level piece of that. There's a problem solving piece of that. Don't get me wrong. There are some specific uh, events that, you know, that I can think of, you know, where a refueling operation on a running airplane. So if you're refueling a running airplane, that's a pretty specific training event. Um, probably multiple career fields have, are used to operating around running airplanes. And it's probably not a very high bar to do some additional training to be able to, to refuel that airplane it's loud, um, you know, there's, so you've got some of your, your sensory capabilities diminished because you, okay, now I'm only trusting my eyes, not my eyes and my ears. But, um, and I think it's easy for us to focus on the turning of the airplane example. It's a good one. It really is. But I don't, so I think it's, it's maybe accurate, but it's not complete. You know, a more complete picture of MCA is the mindset of I don't walk up to a problem set, look at the badge of my uniform and say, oh, I'm not the right career field. <clears throat> you, uh, from, a, from an MCA perspective, I think what the chief is looking for is problem solving with the minimum number of people and not being thwarted by something unexpected that pops up in front of us. Um, and, and then for those specific examples, like the, the running airplane refuel example I gave, there's absolutely specific academics and specific training, which, you know, give people the opportunity to have that training, they're going to do great at it. And then if there's a decision that has to be made on what's the risk acceptance for that location, um, pushing that down to the lowest appropriate level. I don't I don't use the phraseology of the lowest possible level because I think you can you could push you can push a decision down to a level that it's possible, but they may you know the leader may not be informed enough of the trades that need to be made. So I'd say the lowest appropriate level. Now the lowest appropriate level may be I can tell you I was given the example of uh, airmen driving fuel through Iraq. So convoy commander is a tech sergeant. You know, I've seen a tech sergeant who that's not the job they did at home, but in a deployed environment, they're getting an intel brief. They're doing uh, they're doing uh, communications checks. They're doing weapons checks before they roll out. Um, and they had no problem doing it. Uh, and now that wasn't there was some sliver of that was within their career field. But the the uh, capability that they brought to the table to be able to receive the intel brief, look at the weapons checks, look at the vehicle operations, check the airmen that they have working for them, doing the eyeball check and saying, we're ready to go. That's like leadership NCO 
stuff that's career field agnostic. And I, I believe that's a lot of what Chief Brown's talking about. Mm-hmm. I think you know, to dive a little bit back into the technical nature of our jobs, right, and and the the responsibilities that we have, the focus that we have on um, on the the technical and engineering culture that the Air Force kind of inculcates, right? Um, and I, I feel like that plays to our detriment as well when we're when we're looking at something like MCA and breaking out of that mindset of like, hey, look, like. Um, just because, like, hey, I was a metals tech troop before this, um, not sheet metal, just for the record. Just for the record. <laughs> That's right. Um, and, and it was, you know, just so frustrating when someone comes to a job and they're just like, hey, well, I don't know how to do this, right? Um, or I don't even want to, uh, like, we, we need to call, uh, you know, someone else to do this. Hey, that's not my part of the TO. Um, just we need to open that aperture. Right. right and to learn and to be open to learning, but I think also the 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 important piece, or an, not the important piece, but another important piece is empowering commanders to take risks in exercises in training uh, to allow for uh, uh, a fuels troop to load ammo on an aircraft, right? Um, to you know take a metals tech troop. And say, hey, look, here's an M16. You got to sit next to that defender. Or, hey, port dog, CE needs some help establishing this runway. I definitely saw <clears throat> examples um, in AFSENT uh, of ACE operations. And I don't, at the time, um, the MCA phraseology was just kind of developing and uh, and progressing, but I definitely saw, uh, I think, appropriate level risk assessment that was done um, in uh, by commanders in AFSENT when I was in a previous job, where they were assessing. Okay, we're going to take, um, we're going to provide training. We're not going to set people up for failure. Uh, we're going to provide training. And the training is executed to the satisfaction of the responsible commander. And uh, you go and you, and you try it. Now, most of the time, the people that are doing something that's not their regular, um, their regular career field, if they get uncomfortable, like, hey, you know, I don't feel like we've done enough here to prepare me for, they're probably going to raise their hand and go, you know, this is not the smartest thing for us to be doing. Um, I think we need to give credit to the person that's doing it mm-hmm. to raise that hand. They're they're not mindlessly going off to um, do some operation that they're completely uh, not prepared to do. They're going to know and they're going to elevate that. They've got to have. Now there needs to be a, a trusting and accepting, uh, you know, kind of NCO core that's right there that goes okay. Um, probably need to take note of this. This was didn't turn out the way we thought it would. And then we adjust going forward. But if we wait until we're 100% ready, 100%, 100%, 100%, we might be 100% ready two weeks late. And it doesn't matter. And I think that's part of the, you know, getting back to the risk acceptance piece uh, that you described earlier and getting to the lowest appropriate level and, and trying some things, which I think is happening throughout the Air Force uh, right now. And it'll... It makes people uncomfortable 
especially at the beginning. Uh, and I've heard General Brown say this a number of times, including yesterday. He said, if we're not, uh, if we're not uncomfortable to some degree, we're probably not doing it right. Um, I always ask myself, if you think you have forever to make a decision, you could wait till you're like at the 99% and three quarter confident level. But, but what do you really need to make the decision? If you knew that you had to figure something out by tomorrow, your risk acceptance level goes, wait, you're like, okay, we're going to figure this out by tomorrow. We don't have till next year. We have tomorrow. Okay. Now I need to recalibrate. So I don't think it's a one and done decision on how MCA and how we as an air force, um, implement it. I think it, it depends on the situation. It depends on trust, trusting the people that you, that work in your organization that you have a responsibility to as a leader, whether it's a senior enlisted leader, an officer leader, a civil servant. Uh, I don't I don't think that um, matters with distinction between which which flavor of leader that uh, that you have your that role in, but trusting the people that you're responsible for and the people that work for you having trust in you um, that that we have to provide the the difference between the traditional way we've approached problem solving and the innovative way we approach problem solving, which really is kind of a core, it's kind of core to the airman persona. I mean, that is, that is we were a service born of innovation, and I don't think that changes. And talking about risk and trust and decisions. Do you mind telling us about a time where you had to make a really hard decision, like in a, uh, like in a deployed environment where, you know, everything is on the line? I'm not hesitating because I can't think of one. I'm hesitating because I have several that just went through my mind right then. Um, I downgraded 27 red X's on one airplane one time. Now, everybody on your podcast is not a maintainer. And so downgrade a red X condition means the airplane can't fly for name the reason. Um, in this case, uh, a rocket had skipped, didn't detonate, but skipped and peppered C-130 with 27 holes, including going through Longerons, all kinds of big uh, pieces. So this airplane was peppered. Thankfully, um, the uh, crew chief that was sitting on the ramp on the back, you know, uh, saw the flash, a whole bunch of metal flying around, but wasn't hit. Um, but then we have, now we have a problem set. You know, we're in Afghanistan. We've got an airplane that looks like Swiss cheese. And, um, and for fighters, there's some options, you know, F-16, uh, or even an F-15, uh, you can take the wings off. There's a EDMX team, comes out of one of the ALCs, flies over, brings a crate, takes it apart, puts it in a box, goes in the back of the C-5, goes home. Uh, not the case for a C-130. Uh, so your options are pretty limited. So a uh, team of metals tech and sheet metal uh, and... Uh, crew chiefs and specialists and engineers uh, on site did multiple, um, I mean, over a period of, I think, about six weeks, a number of repairs to this airplane 
none of almost none of them being permanent repairs. They were temp repairs, tight coordination with the airworthiness authority, engineering, going, you know, do you have this material? No. Do you have this material? Yes. Okay. The repair will be with that material and here's how you'll do it. Go through all these. Um, not to drag it out, but the airplane has to fly across the ocean with human beings in it. And so in the end, uh, as I'm downgrading these 27 Red X's, you know, who am I relying on? I'm relying on uh, the engineers who've determined it's the right fix. I'm relying on the, the craftsman capability of the technicians who did the work. Um, I'm not I'm not metals tech, I'm not sheet metal, I'm not a hydraulic specialist, I'm not an engineer. Uh, I had to trust other people that they are as good as they say they are at their job. And I did trust them um, so that I could look at the air crew in the eye and say, you can take this airplane and you can fly it across the ocean so it can go and have its permanent repair. Um, there's some other ones, but I think in a broad trust category, uh, that was one that I I learned a lot about a lot of other people um, during that experience, which was, it was a lesson to me on something that I, I kind of already knew, but it just reinforced to me the importance of being able to trust other people and, and their expertise. And that when they say they got it, they got it and they had it. And it was, it all went smooth. Uh, they went back, they did uh, permanent repairs later on. And, um, you know, frankly, the, the, the senior person actually with hands work being done on the airplane was a tech sergeant. And he was by far the most senior people that were working on it from the beginning. So I really appreciate you sharing that, sir. And what a great story to talk about the, the challenges that in a microcosm that our airmen can face in the future, right? Because, hey, we're not always going to have, I mean, well, when we're thousands of miles away, hey, we're not going to be able to replace aircraft and parts, people. Um, you know, sometimes we're not even going to have the necessities like food or fuel. Um, and hard decisions are going to have to be made and trust is going to have to be placed in your people, um, especially those NCOs. I feel like I'm going to call this the NCO podcast. It's, <laughs> it's I don't have to be convinced. I, mean, yeah. I think I think it's the the thing that makes us different mm -hmm. as a service 100%. and uh, as a as a nation for sure. And then selfishly, you know, within the Air Force, for us to say, "Hey, this is if you and you know, describing it to someone who's not in the Air Force, you know, you can be um, you." You know, maybe my vocabulary is just too limited to really, you know, make the compelling, um, you know, it's a it's a it's a weaved fabric of a service versus two co-located, you know, worlds of officer and en enlisted leadership. It is it is truly it is a a a weave, you know, and when you weave things together, they're stronger. So mm -hmm. I think that's one of the the pieces and, you know. One of the reasons I've stayed in the Air Force, frankly, because that's I'll, I get asked sometimes. Uh, I'm glad you didn't, but you know I get asked, "Hey, what was your favorite assignment?" And I never have a geography answer to that because if you because when you think about that assignment, what was your favorite assignment? 
inevitably you're the bunch of faces flash before your eyes you're thinking oh yeah yeah if you went back to that zip code today it wouldn't be the same people it's actually the people that make that assignment so meaningful to you to your family um and it's not that you couldn't have great experiences in the future but i don't think it's possible to recreate exactly the experience you had before and the even though there there might be water or mountains or trees or you name whatever geography features are there the human beings that are there are actually what makes the difference and that's the weave that's the that's the culture that you're talking about I think that's the culture that's going to get us through whatever competition and hopefully not, but if needed, uh, winning in conflict. Great way to, to cap it off. But you want to end with a, a fun uh, lightning round of questions? Sure. Lightning round. Okay. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. Um, who's your favorite Avenger? Oh, man. Uh, I guess I'd have to say Captain America. It's a personal joke, but. <laughs> What's the joke? Uh, well, then it wouldn't be personal. So oh, okay. It was, uh, it's somebody I know uh, okay. thinks, thinks a lot of it. Okay, okay. Um, where's your favorite place to go vacation? Uh, favorite skiing. Love to ski. Family skis, you know, it's just, it's fun. Um, I've only snowboarded, but I probably should start skiing. You know, the older you get, you, yeah. may, you may come over to the don't fall down as much side, but I'm yeah. sure your, your listeners are varied in their, their approach on that. I'm an old person. I ski. And are you from Texas? I am from Texas. I'm from Dallas. So are you? I yeah. went to UT Arlington. Awesome. My sister went to UTA. Oh, very good. Yeah. yeah. I went to OU though. Well, Boomer you know, sooner. there you go. And, yeah. uh, you know, and I just came from Oklahoma, uh, you know, mm-hmm. four months ago. So nope. Um, that is, uh, the land of Whataburger and, uh, and I do miss it. Whataburger is superior. Uh, but yeah, when I sat down with General Brown, I gave him a hard time for going to Texas Tech because uh, we're Big 12 guys. But uh, yeah, good stuff. Favorite book? Favorite book? Um, there's a bunch of Tom Clancy books that, are, that were written before you were born that I could, um, I could zip off. I think uh, I won't name the 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 name of the book right now um but i think i read a lot of leadership books and i'll read a lot of history books and the reason i read both is i don't i don't think i'm ever done learning about leaders i'm a student of leadership um and i'm surprised with how many things in um in history we revisit over and over again. And if you, and I think it's useful to go back in history and go, hey, where do we think we are uh, uh, compared to, to right now? Yeah, I love the same genres, so. <laughs> um, yeah, good stuff. And then last question. Sure. What would you say your superpower is? That's tough. I hope someone else would say my superpower is collaboration. I hope. Uh, now, I don't know that that's, always the case but if i was going to have somebody say what's the superpower you wish you were really good at and you've seen other people be really good at and you think is really valuable um collaborating with other people on tough problem sets um that'd be the one that i'd go for general miller thank you so much for coming on today uh, on test rack podcast 
um, I had a blast, and um, maybe we can do a, a little Blez update sometime next year with uh, Senior Airman Dorfler. That sounds great. So. It's, it's great that you uh, put this on. It's great that you take the time uh, to do it. Uh, I was glad to participate in it. Thanks for, for doing that. Thank you, sir. Thank you again for listening to Tesseract Podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and connect with us on LinkedIn. Any references to trademarked, copyrighted, or protected products or services such as books, movies, or businesses are used here for the limited purpose of education and professional development of Air Force Airmen. If you have any questions, please contact us at www.tesseract.af.mil.